0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan and Micah, for sharing your story. Um, This morning, we will be starting a new season as we begin our journey through Lent. And as we sang about and as we heard of a story, we'll be looking at this theme um, throughout Lent as prompted by um, The Leader magazine. The authors of Leader explain Lent this way. Lent is the 40 day season when the church commemorates the 40 days Jesus spent in solitude, in silence, and fasting in the wilderness. This time apart was Jesus' season of preparation before beginning his ministry. Every year, Christ's followers are encouraged to also embark on their own 40 day journey as a part of our story, stepping into this darker season as a way of preparing um, to receive and share more fully in the contrasting resurrection light of the Easter story. So traveling this 40-day journey will look differently for everyone, but I encourage you to engage in some way. Maybe for you it does mean fasting, or giving up a form of comfort or convenience. Maybe it means more intentional devotional time as a family, or perhaps it looks more like regular confession and prayer time between you and God. However you feel God leading on this journey of dependence on him, I challenge challenge you to share it with someone else um, close for accountability and just to watch with expectancy what God will do. Leader Magazine continues, like the people of Israel in their season of wandering, we too wander from Jesus in a variety of ways. And God can use this season of wandering as a time of preparation and pruning. When pruning the branches of a fruit tree, one cuts off not only the dead branches, but also the healthy branches that surround the dead branches that hinder the tree's fruitfulness. Pruning makes room for light to reach the parts of the tree that will bear much fruit. Similarly, in this season of wandering and preparation, we are invited to make room for God's Spirit by wrestling struggling, and letting God do the pruning in our lives so that the light will reach into our lives and we will bear fruit. So over this course of the Lent season, over the next several weeks leading to Easter, we will be viewing our Father God through the lens of a great author who is inviting the people of God into a grand narrative, a tale that encompasses all our struggles, our pains, our joys and victories. This author calls us to co-authorship, using our very lives to shape Jesus' ongoing kingdom story. In the ups and downs found in the pages and chapters of our stories, Christ journeys with us. So this morning we'll, we'll start our journey in Luke 4, um, recounting the time of trial and temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Um, I've asked Ethan and Garrett to help me with um, some reading of the, of the scripture. Luke 4, 1 through 13. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, people do not live by the bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, The scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. So this morning, our focus is this. When we acknowledge God as the author of life, letting go of the pen becomes possible. There are necessary moments in our stories when we come to the end of ourselves and realize the pen is not ours. This is when we have opportunities to recognize the word planted in us and to rely on the author to be our sustainer and provider by allowing God's hand to write our lives. I recently participated in a woman's conference called um, the If Gathering. And the big idea of the conference is to ask ourselves, if God is real, then what? Do I really believe? And there was a a tragic yet powerful story shared of a woman named Catherine who had literally come to the end of herself. She could do or give nothing. She was 26 and suffered a severe brainstem stroke which took her ability to walk, talk, and even eat. She was married just a couple years and had an infant son at the time. After she came out of a coma, she began many, many years of therapy and retraining. Catherine shared her own story at the conference, now able to eat, talk, and even stand on her own. When she was asked if her whole experience has made her faith stronger, she replied candidly something like, not really. I'm thankful my faith was strong and I had spent plenty of time in God's word, hiding his promises in my heart before it all happened. Then I could recall God's faithfulness and goodness beyond my present circumstance. Catherine was more or less forced to let go of her pen in a way that I'm sure she would not have chosen. But in her surrendered state, she chose hope and joy over anger and giving up completely. She remained in the Lord and abided in his promises, even when it seemed she had no control over the pen. Much like Jesus recalling the scriptures for strength and his own protection from Satan's temptations. I would suggest a letting go of the pen then begins with abiding and remaining in the Father. and We read this in John 15 specifically verses 1 through 5 and 16, with Jesus speaking here. I am the true grapevine. My Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. Satan uses... Comfort and abundance authority and possession and of territory and finally power to try to tempt Jesus he takes good things and makes them ultimate things but Jesus displays confident belief in the father and returns potent truth in scripture for Satan's sly tactics when Satan takes a good thing like food and plays on Jesus' desperate appetite, he's trying to make the the comfort and temporary satisfaction of that food the ultimate thing. To To this, Jesus reminds Satan and all of us that man cannot live on bread alone. Our necessary spiritual and emotional nourishment comes from God alone. Then, when Satan tries to make authority, possession of territory, and a display of power into ultimate things... Jesus dispels Satan's ploys and recalls the first commandment of worshiping God and serving him only. Then finally, he puts an end to all the tempting by declaring, you must not test the Lord your God. Or for our context this morning, it's maybe like Jesus is saying, you must not undermine my authorship. The pen is not yours to keep. Let go of the pen. We can follow Christ's example of letting go and letting God, like he did in the wilderness, in his wandering. Other examples of this come to mind as well, of times when Jesus remained close to the Father, and even he surrendered his pen. Even with all his knowledge and all his power, he allowed Judas to go about his business. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, while the disciples slept, he was conversing with the Father. He let go of the pen took the cup, and endured much suffering on our behalf. Are we comfortable with this kind of risk and solitude of letting go? Wandering and fasting, experiencing deprivation of some sort, is certainly isolating. So how might we make space in our lives to choose to wander, to experience radical dependency on God, and then return to community? In this season, how can we practice and recognize a coming to the end of ourselves and surrendering to the great author? One way might be to join with an accountability partner or a spiritual mentor and practice abiding in the word together. Another discipline might be to remember the reality of our God's everlasting promises and reaffirm our life-altering belief in him. Romans ten eight through 10, speaks to this belief, saying, The message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. It's by believing in our heart that we are made right with God. So to me, this must mean that our belief cannot be dormant. It is not passive. In light of this proactive and transforming um, view on belief, I was convicted of, of some of my own unbelief after reading a blog um, by Caesar Kalinowski, who is um, a spiritual entrepreneur and mentor. He addresses four core beliefs, or eternal truths, suggested by um, Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change. Kalinowski writes, Typically people want to blame their sin on their circumstances. I got angry because the guy cut me off in traffic. I started to worry all the time because my husband lost his job. I yelled at the kids because they weren't obeying me. But the reality is that our circumstances merely reveal what is already in our hearts. Our struggles reveal our hearts. He continues, This heart-level perspective is a radical view of sin and repentance. But this, respect, this perspective is also a very helpful view of sin and transformation because it very clearly shows us the way out. Most of us think that the way to stop sinning is to change our behavior. But if behind every sin is a lie about God... Then, what really needs to change is what I am believing in my heart. And these are the four eternal truths that, when not fully believed, Chester suggests, lead to every sin. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for my satisfaction. God is gracious so I don't have to prove myself. How often can we honestly say we are wholeheartedly believing every one of those statements? At least two of these jumped off the page to me immediately, showing me my unbelief. Kalinowski continues by writing, "'Not many Christians think of themselves as unbelievers. "'We normally use the term to describe people who are sojourners or not yet disciples.'" But there are many things about God that we actually do not believe. Often there is a large gap between what we say we believe in our head and what we truly believe in our heart, what we live out. I'll invite the worship team at this time as we reflect. So what do you really need to start believing? And what do you need to let go of? How can you just abide and remain more fully in the father where is god calling you to trust in him as author of your life and where is he nudging you to let go of the pen i invite you